Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him go. And it was then that she said a, bride, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Now there's a switch of, there's a switch of audience here from Moses and Aaron to Moses having returned to Israel and speaking to the leadership of Israel. Verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, and, and Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Chapter 5. Again, shift in audience. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the, task ma- the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, make in the, that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. Your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered all through the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when the people as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you done done all your why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? 
Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your people. And he said, You are idle. You were idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce the number of bricks your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge you, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I'll take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of the land, out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Chapter 6, verse 14. This is a genealogy, so bear with me. We're going to come back to this, okay? I'm going to work at expert pronunciation. Just kidding. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Murai, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shemai, they, by their clans. The son of Kohath, Amram, Ishhar, Hebron, and Uzael. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merai. Mali and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jehokabed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram 
being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Negpeth, Zikri, and the sons of Uzael, the period. The sons of Uzael, Mishael, Elazaphan, and, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elasheba, the daughter of Abinadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisahaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar's Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putael, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I have said to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Thus says the word of the Lord. Again, thank you for uh, listening to all of that. I want us to be able to hear that as we work through the book of Exodus and actually hear the entire book but also get it as an overview of what all is going on. Again, we're not going to address every single topic that is in here, but we are going to look at themes that we see here and themes that travel throughout the book of Exodus. So first theme that I want us to address as it pertains to how does God uh, work with and address his children. I'm going to look at four themes this morning. The first theme, I simply want to begin with a question. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? We see that a couple different times, specifically in chapter 4, verse 21. 4.21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the, all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This has been an age-old question of what is going on and why did God do this? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like this is something you could just twist away and saying, surely God is uh, saying something different, even though this is exactly what it sounds like, and even though this phrase is repeated several times in the book of Exodus. So, so the, uh, it's a fair question. Um, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? It's a difficult question because truly at first reading, our interpretive, uh, our interpretive question is, why does God disallow Pharaoh from doing the right thing? That's what it sounds like he's saying. Why does God disallow Pharaoh from doing the right thing? It seems like God is trapping him, or maybe God is locking Pharaoh into disobedience, and that doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fair. It seems like God is actually withholding him from the opportunity to obey. Um, again, understanding that Exodus is a beautiful narrative that shows how God works with his people and how God provides for his people. To get a, a good grip on this question of why did God harden Pharaoh's heart, I think it's good and fair to ask the question, um, what is Pharaoh's heart being hardened towards? Does that make sense? All right, so let's ask that question. God hardened his heart, so what did God harden his heart towards? Is, is, is Pharaoh's heart being hardened towards God's command to free the Israelites? Track with me. Is, is Pharaoh's heart being hardened towards God's command to free the Israelites? Because that's 
what it sounds like. Um, if so, then his heart is simply being hardened uh, towards a matter of rote obedience to God's word. It seems like God has hardened his heart towards Abraham, or not Abraham, but to Pharaoh, and he is simply not behaving in the way that he is commanded to by God. Is, has Hardin's heart been hardened to simply do the command? It's an important question, and I propose no. I propose that God never, in the scope of history, is merely calling for rote obedience, ever. And what we're going to look at here in just a second is that, that God, that throughout the course of Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see several examples of hearts being hardened. And there is always a continuous call for the heart to fall in line and worship God. And that obedience then comes from worship. But nowhere in Scripture do we say God or do we see God putting out this command of, listen, this is not a matter of worship. This is not a matter of you not agreeing that I am God and I am the only way, and the only truth, and the only life, or that, that, that there is some other being that I compete with, or that you can do your thing. You just need to obey me in this one area. That's, that's never the way that it is. That there is a call on all of mankind to worship the one true God. And that is what obedience comes from. And that there is a call on the life of all the Egyptians, and that there is a call even on the king of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, to worship God. And there is testimony of this God in Egypt, because the land is filled with God's people. There is a land that is filled with God's people who know the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only that, but the land is filled with the testimony of, of God's people, even though they're in slavery because they got to Egypt because of this God's goodness. And Joseph, when he came to Egypt, screamed from the rooftops, that this is God who's given me this dream, therefore we're going to provide for the famine, which is going to lead to the inf seemingly infinite wealth of the nation of Egypt, and, the, and, and all the other nations are going to come to you and pay a lot of money for the food that God has shown me in a dream to provide for you. And so Joseph was made second in all of Egypt. And so that's part of their history. That's part of their written history. They didn't remember it, but it's part of their history. And they, it, was, it was in the books. It wasn't in their hearts. So there was great renown for the God of the, of the Israelites. But it was forgotten. And so what we see here in examples of hearts being hardened, that this is not just an example of God looking down, waving his finger, saying, let my people go, pagan. It's the same call that God has always put on that says, I am God, and you are not, and I must be worshipped. Anything else is sinful, and it always will be. Anything else will be pagan, anything else will be disgusting in my sight, Pharaoh. So the examples of hearts being hardened, it's just a simple example that we see in Pharaoh because it's so blatant that God says that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You don't have to turn to these places, but we see an example of the Israelites' hearts being hardened. In the book of Deuteronomy, which is, which is just a continuation of the explanation of the law that is given on Mount Sinai, which we see later in the book of Exodus. And among the law of God to his chosen people, in a small matter, not of idol worship, but of taking care of your brothers and sisters in need, Deuteronomy 15.9 says, Take care 
lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. That seems pretty light. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Because where does worship start? It's in your heart. That's what God has called. That's what he has always called. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. You need the law, but it's about the heart. And if you sin in your heart, then you're sinning in all the ways of the law. Okay, so that's an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept. Take care, lest there be an unworthy or an unworshipful thought in your heart. And you say, um, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye looks begrudgingly against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land, the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. Now, this is speaking of a lesser example of just not taking care of your brothers and sisters nationalistically, not even bloodline, who are simply in need. That there can be a shutting of the door of the worship of God in your heart that leads to the hardening of your hearts. This is speaking to the children of God. And it is a great sin. Psalm 95, later in the Old Testament, says this, Today, if you hear his voice, meaning if you hear the voice of God, it says, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. This is speaking to God followers. Do not harden your hearts. And then it gives an example. As you did at Meribah and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. This is, the, this is in Exodus. This is a reference to Exodus when they were wandering in the wilderness. And what they were doing is they had just been miraculously given manna because they had no food. And so every single morning, God provided miraculously food, nourishment, physical nourishment from God above in a miraculous way that was not foreseen. And then the next chapter, they fall into, into grumbling because, ah, oh, we have all the food we want, but we don't have water. And they even say to God, you brought us here to die, God. This is after they defeated the Egyptians. This is after they had crossed the Red Sea. This is after he had given them manna. I mean, literally raining down from heaven to provide for their, their needs at the moment. And then the next moment they say, why did you bring us here to God? And then they said to God in Exodus 16, I think this is, it would be better for us to be in Egypt. Which is just ignorance. <laughs> Don't you remember that they were killing your babies, giving you a truly unobtainable workload with a knife to your throat? I mean, this is just blasphemy to God. This is the hardening of their hearts. And this is not Pharaoh. This is the children of Israel who saw the plagues with their eyes, not a couple generations later. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and they hardened their hearts. This is about worship. We see later in the book of Joshua, the enemies of God, Joshua 11, it says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, meaning the Canaanites, the enemies of God. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but they should be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Once again, this is speaking of the Canaanites, the people who are in the promised land that the children of Israel are commanded to conquer. And it says, the Lord, this is the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel so that these pagan countries can be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy. 
we're kind of like, well, that doesn't sound like the loving God of the Bible. I mean, how can that happen? But this is in the book of Joshua. But if you backtrack all the way to the book of Exodus, we see in the original covenant between God and Abraham, God is prophesying. And he says to Abraham, and they, meaning your children, which are not yet born, because he's speaking to Abraham, the father, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, meaning to the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites are essentially are the Canaanites. So God is saying to Abraham, who has no, generation, no, no generations yet, he's saying, I'm making a promise to you that your people will become great, which they did in Egypt, in number, two million, uh, and they will come back in the fourth generation, prophesied hundreds of years later, and they will conquer the Amorites, the Canaanites. But their iniquity is not yet complete, meaning that God is not going to lay his judgment out yet. There is still, we talked about this last week, there's still time for repentance. Where there's life, there's hope. So if there's an air moving in and out of your nostrils, there's opportunity for you to repent. There's opportunity for you to hear the word of God. And God has said, I'm going to suspend my judgment for 400 years. And if they do not repent, I will judge them. And I will judge them by my people conquering them. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, the Philistines take over a godless country, and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. And they say to themselves, why should we harden our hearts as the Egyptians hardened their hearts, and as Pharaoh hardened his heart after they had been de dealt severely by, by the God of the Israelites? Why should we do these things? These are the Philistines, the, the enemies of God. Because God was casting judgment on them because they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember that story. And then in the New Testament, let's look at Hebrews chapter 3. All hardening of the heart. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read this chapter. Because the book of uh, chapter 3 in the book of Hebrews is a commentary on Psalm 95, which we just read, that says, if you, hear the verse, if you hear the word of the Lord, do not harden your heart as they did at Meribah. Okay? And what we have in Hebrews is this awesome commentary of itself, the Bible commentarying, commentating itself. And we get to go back and look at it. So Hebrews chapter 3, which is speaking to first century Christ followers, all right, Christians at this point, because the Christ on the cross has already happened. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Then Moses, excuse me, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Enter Old Testament quote from Psalm, and Psalm is quoting Exodus. Isn't it cool how this is all tied together? Exodus at the beginning, retold by the psalmist, 
re-explained by the author of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing. All right, it says, do not harden your hearts. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. This is a warning based on that, based on hardening your hearts, based on not worshiping the Lord. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart. It's the heart issue leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened. This is talking to Christians that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As he said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. A hardening of the heart is unbelief. Not just not obeying a, a simple command, but unbelief. We're going to slide into chapter 4 here in Hebrews just for a few verses. Because it continues the commentary. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, of, of the world for he has some, somewhere spoken of the seventh day, in this rest, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Um, move down to chapter 4, verse 11. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, which is of the heart. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you do not listen to the word of God, what is left to change you? Moses was speaking the words of God to Pharaoh. Jump back to Exodus. Moses was speaking the words of God to Pharaoh. When the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, it was the words of God that they were disobeying. It was a matter of the heart. Pharaoh himself said, who is this God in chapter 4? Excuse me, in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is this guy? I don't know him. He doesn't have anything over me. Not only that, but I am going to double your burden today. It says today he made that command. 
and I'm going to take something that was unbearable, and I'm going to make it impossible, and then I'm going to command it of you. I'm not going to do this. So it's not only the mat- a matter of, 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 of disbelief and hardening the heart and not submitting to God in worship, but Pharaoh has said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take this to the nth degree. In the New Testament, we don't, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. In the New Testament, aside from this text in Hebrews, we see Jews, who are Pharisees and Sadducees, that take the words of God and the work of Christ, the actual work of the man, Jesus Christ, and his performing of miracles, and they take his work and they attribute them to Satan. And Jesus says, If you will not listen to me, if the Holy Spirit cannot touch your heart, you cannot be saved. You're unsavable. This is the text that people refer to as the unpardonable sin. And it's not the action that he's talking about here, but if, if your heart is closed to God and the Holy Spirit, there is not a plan B. There's not a holy, Holy Spirit. And if you will not listen, you cannot be saved. If your heart is that hard, then it's over. There's, there are no more words for the Holy Spirit to say. 1 Timothy chapter 4, speaking to believers, says, speaks of, of the inconsistency of liars who are in the church and their consciences are seared, meaning they're closed. They're closed to hearing from God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 says that it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, meaning, this is not a time to speak on this text, but there are people who sit under the teaching of God's word, people who claim to be a follower, people who say, I do believe, I do believe, and then they leave. And if they leave the word of God, what is left to compel them back? Their hearts are hardened. They have said, no. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. If you've quenched the Spirit, what's left to speak to you? So all through the Old Testament and, and, and in the New Testament, we see this concept, this idea of the hardening of a, of a heart. But the hardening of heart is not just disobedience. The hardening of, heart of your heart is saying, I will not worship the true and living God. The hardening of a heart is I will not worship, and it walks the heart into specific, defiant ways of disbelief in the face of overwhelming proof. Pharaoh Pharaoh knew of the God of the Israelites, renounced him, and not only said no to him, but he said, I will not only that, but today... In spite, I will raise the burden of the chosen people because they have too much time on their hands. This is, this is a different level of disbelief. Just like the sins of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who attributed the, work, the actual work of Christ to Satan, that was a different level of defiant disbelief. The hardening of their hearts. Just like the children of Israel who had seen the work of God in giving them manna and opening the Red Sea and the ten plagues, And the angel of death in the Passover, they had seen that with their eyes and that they had seen God in in the form of, of, of miraculous light lead them. In spite of all that, they had said, no, we will not believe and we're going to grumble and we're going to say, God, why did you spit at us? You should have left us in slavery. That's the hardening of heart. 
And so what we see in Pharaoh is this generational hardening of a heart. Because it said that when Moses came back, that the, the Pharaoh who had sought the life of Moses was dead. So that this, the Pharaoh who had actually commanded the infanticide of the killing of the, Israel, of the children of Israel's children continued in that line, but he didn't, know, he didn't know Moses. So we see this generational, despicable, dark sin that said, it's okay for me to write a law that says people of Egypt, not just my centurions, not just my soldiers, but people of Egypt, you are now allowed to take a baby and toss it in the ocean while mom cries. You're allowed to do that because we don't want them to get too powerful. And they did it, okay? This is the same Pharaoh who generationally now had inflicted slavery on, on, on a nation. And then when they heard of their God, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn up the heat on you and see who wins the day. So what I am suggesting here is that Pharaoh's heart had already been made up. And that, as we discussed last week, God used that for his greater purposes. God is the one who raises kingdoms and drops them to the ground. That we see the hardening of people's hearts all throughout the course of Scripture because they continually say no. That's why the whole concept of a deathbed conversion is, a, is not a thing to put your hope in. Because a man who continually throughout the course of his life says no to God, says no to God, says no to God, says no to God, and at the very end, there's no reason to believe that he will change his heart because he's never said yes. He's never tasted of the glory of God. Now, are there examples? Are there, you know, the, what about the thief on the cross? I mean, God works in mysterious ways, and I want to emphasize here that God works in mysterious ways. So I don't have a full explanation. This is not a complete explanation of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. But these are pieces that must be considered, and really as believers, because so much of this, most of the examples of the hardening of, of, the, of the heart that we see in Scripture are to God's people. It's to the children of Israel. It's to Christians in the first century in the book of Hebrews and 1 Timothy. And so there is a great warning here that you have to make sure that your heart is not being hardened. You're not safe. Just because you're not Pharaoh killing babies doesn't mean you're safe. That we have to be submitting our hearts and our minds to God continually lest our hearts be hardened. We need to take this very seriously. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of, of God turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and that we must be dependent on the gospel consistently. And there have been times in my life when I have held on to unforgiveness there have been times in my life when I have been held on to bitterness because people have legitimately sinned against me, that people have legitimately taken advantage of me. There are people who have legitimately done things that they ought not have done against me, and there have been times where I have said, I, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to worship God through my life and my circumstances, but I'm going to worship self, and I'm going to continue to be ticked off at this guy. And you know what happens? That heart gets hard and harder and harder and harder. And sin left unchecked always gets worse. Infection left unaddressed always grows. And so what we see in Pharaoh and in his heart, that his heart had been hardened. It had been hardened for a long time. And in the face of God and the very words of God, he still said no. 
He still said no. There is an element of mystery here that I can't explain. Why did God emphasize this so much that this was his doing? And we need to understand that God works in, 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 in mysterious ways and to hold on to the fact that a hard heart is dangerous. Believer, unbeliever. All that to say, the, the first thing we're going to look at is that a hard heart is dangerous. Uh, look at uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. All right, so here what's happened is Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm going to turn up the heat. And the children of Israel were like, what are you doing, Pharaoh? We can't possibly accomplish this. Pharaoh shoots down the, Isra the, the Jewish foremen, and when the Jewish foremen come out and they see Moses and Aaron, they say, what have you brought upon us? We stink now in the eyes of the Egyptians. Why did you do this to us? And Moses was like, I, I didn't see, I mean, I'm assuming in his mind, he's saying, I didn't see this coming. I thought you were going to be delivered. God said, speak, and then I was going to free them, and I'm not sure. So Moses then goes to God and says, God, what are you doing? <laughs> why have you done this? Why did, why, did you, why, did you, why did you set me up to be smacked by Pharaoh? And then now to be despised by an entire people group that are, that, that's my kin. And again, what God does here is he says the same thing that he's been saying and he will continue to say. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give to you a possession. I am the Lord. What we see is that the covenant isn't changing. It just continues to be promised. That it continues to be, God continues to remind Moses and the children of Israel, this is the covenant. It, he is he's speaking it over and over. And what he's not doing to it is he's not adding to it. He's not beefing it up. You know, if you look throughout the, the book of Exodus, what you see is 18 different times the reference to the God of Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is just what it is. Now, the glory of the covenant is that the covenant is the best that it could possibly be. So when the children of Israel get pushed back from Pharaoh and they look back at Moses and say, what are you doing to us? God doesn't say, okay, 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 well, how about this? Let me add some incentive like a Verizon plan, okay? 
Because, you know, if you, if you have a contract with Verizon, you say, hey, keep on with us or sign up with us and we'll get you a new phone. We'll get you more data now. We'll get you better coverage. We'll get you better customer service. We'll upgrade your phone. We'll get you uh, Verizon money that you can spend on your next phone. Like, it, it, it keeps a- up in the ante. You know, it's not what it used to be in 1995. You know, you get so much more now. And, it, and in 2020, it was like, well, well, we'll add a family plan. You know, we'll add your favorites list. We'll give you... Google credit, whatever it happens to be, you're, you're saying we're going to take this contract and make it better. We're going to make it sweeter. We're going to make it taste better. We're going to do this and this and this. And what God is saying over and over and over here is that he is not capitalistic. All right, He is not Verizon. He's saying the covenant is the covenant. And it is a covenant between infinitely holy and worthy God and infinitely sinful man. All right, You are infinitely you're infinitely bad, and I'm infinitely good, and I, as God, am writing this covenant, and it can't get any better than this, and I'm just going to keep saying it, because you need to keep remembering it, that the covenant is the covenant. It is the plan that has been made from the beginning for me to be your God and for you to be my people, but there is something that is continuously sinful in all of us, in all of mankind, that continues to forget the promise. That continues to say, I don't think it's good enough. That's why Adam and Eve sin in the garden. That's why the children of Israel made the golden calf. That's why the children of Israel grumbled when they had food, but they didn't have water. That's why the disciples ran away when Jesus was being arrested. That's why the Jews screamed, crucify him, because they keep forgetting the promise over and over and over, but God keeps saying the same thing, that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham. The same covenant is still the same, and I'm going to keep saying it because it's your only hope. It's not just the best option that's out there, but it is the best and the only So the covenant is the covenant, and we have to keep going to it. And the glory that we have today is the old covenant was a foreshadowing and a type of the new covenant that we see. And the new covenant is the complete covenant with Jesus Christ. And what we in in, in the church age need to recognize and remember is that we have to keep going back to the new covenant, which is the gospel. Every single day, we need to keep drinking it, keep breathing it, because we keep forgetting You keep forgetting, and I keep forgetting. When you lust, you forget. When you covet, you forget. When you steal, you forget. When you look down on somebody, when you speak poorly, even in your mind, when you you refuse to forgive, you're forgetting the covenant over and over and over, and that leads to the hardening of the heart. You see how these are all tied together. So the second thing that we need to see is that the covenant is the covenant. It's all there is. It's everything that is needed. There is nothing else. I'm going to skip the third theme because I'm going late. We got about six minutes. The third theme is the importance of the genealogy, which we should have opportunity to address later in the book of, of Exodus. So the fourth theme that I really think wraps up this text is Back to the beginning of this, cha- this text in chapter 4, verse 22. Look there with me, please. Chapter 4, verse 22 says, Then, sorry, I'll give you a second. I still get pages. 
I hate it when somebody was like, hey, turn to you know, Deuteronomy 8.15. And then the word of the Lord says, <laughs> you're like, ah, I'm trying to find it. Um, so Exodus 4.22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Moses is preparing the way for Israel to be freed after 400 years in slavery. Does this sound familiar? Moses is preparing the way for Israel to be freed after 400 years of slavery. We've talked about the use of type. All right? Type is a phrase of a foreshadowing or a template that is given in the Old Testament that is incomplete but points to Christ. It says that this is a blurred version of what Christ will be. This is an incomplete version of what Christ will be. And in Exodus 4, when it says, Israel is my firstborn son, it is a type, a representation, an image, a veiled, blurried vision of what Christ is. And Moses has come after 400 years of slavery to pave the way for Israel to be freed. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist shows up as the final prophet. Moses is considered the first great prophet, and John the Baptist is the last great prophet. John the Baptist shows up after 400 years of silence, where there is no prophet who has spoken to God's people. 400 years of, of silence to God's people and has presented the way for the Son to arrive, Jesus. This, you see this connection that Moses, after 400 years of slavery, says, I'm preparing the way for the Lord. And then John the Baptist shows up and says, I'm preparing the way, of, uh, the way of the Lord. I'm the one who comes before, who paves the way. In, in, in Matthew chapter 3, it quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30. It speaks of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, follow with me, because these are all sorts of types that are working together. But the Isaiah text that is speaking about John the Baptist, who is paving the way for Jesus... The Isaiah text speaks of paving the way for the children of Israel to return home from the Babylonian captivity. So what Isaiah is saying is that God is paving the way for his children to return home after 70 years of exile. And what we see is that Israel is an imperfect, shadowy vision of who Jesus is. But what happens is that Israel does is imperfect because Israel has sinned. But when John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus, and Jesus enters the scene, and Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, where does Jesus go? He goes to the wilderness to be tempted. Moses enters the scene and opens the way for the children of Israel to, to go, and where does the children of Israel go? The wilderness. But they sinned. And so they wander for 40 years. How did they sin? They did not listen to the word of God. How did Jesus make it through the 40 days in the wilderness without sinning? Not by bread, but only by the word of God. So he accomplished it. He listened to the word of God. He submitted himself to it, and he obeyed. And he's a type of the one to come. Israel is a type of the one to come that is Christ. Christ is the template. Sorry. Christ is the point of the template that all of this is looking to. Now let me wrap it up with this final statement. And I think this is important. So thanks for, the, thanks for two more minutes. 
what all of this is saying is God is saying through these different themes, I will do this. I will go before you. I will, pray, I will pave the way. I will prepare the way for my son, for my chosen people. I will prepare the way for your enemies to be defeated, and I will destroy them, and I will make your path of deliverance straight. That is what he's saying. Do not harden your hearts, or my righteous judgment will fall on you. All of the examples that you see here. Remember the covenant. It is perfect and will not change. But who are the ones who are forgetting the covenant? The children of Israel. The genealogies point to the faithfulness of Christ over and over. And Israel serves as a Christ. Israel serves as a type of Christ. But who are the oppressors of Israel? Egypt. We see the wilderness. We see Babylonians oppressing. We see the Romans oppressing the nation of Israel. What God is saying here through all of this is that I am here to deliver you from your enemies and I'm here to destroy your enemies. And I'm here to deliver you from you and I'm here to deliver to destroy you. Because we see the, the bigger examples of the hardened hearts in the children of Israel and in Christians in the first century church. We see Christians and the children of Israel forgetting the covenant. We see, we see the type of Israel portraying Christ here pointing us to say that you are incomplete and you are the one that I'm seeking to conquer so that I can give you true life, so that I can make you a new nation, so that I can give you a new king, so that I can give you a new life that is eternal. Now, I, almost Defeating your enemies is almost the lesser side. Defeating the Babylonians is easy. Defeating the Egyptians I do in the, in, in the, in the snap of my fingers, but I am here to conquer you. I'm here to destroy you so that you will die to yourself and find life in me. And that is when the heart is turned to flesh. And that is when the covenant is remembered. And that's when the genealogies can be trusted. And that's when Jesus, after his resurrection, was walking on the road to Emmaus, shared with his disciples all of the stories in the, New, in the Old Testament, starting from Moses, it says and told how they all point to him. I wish I could have been a part of that discussion. So be encouraged in the themes that we see in Exodus, and this is God at work, not just defeating the enemies, but in defeating us. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for being in control. I thank you for the types that we see in the Old Testament. I thank you that we can look back on the cross and we can trust it. Father, I thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.